Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show relatively recent history, we're talking like the 1980s and later, we got convinced in believing that we all have a capital P passion. That's an intrinsic trait like our eye color height. And that really career happiness is a matter of introspection. We do introspection and we discover what it is our passion is. And then we go match that to what we do for a living and we'll be happy. So I, I studied this question in that book and said, that's not how it happens. Passion comes later. Everybody thinks, oh, it's what you started off with or what you were born with or who's in your network or who do you know. But the reality is you got to be so good people can't ignore you. I don't believe that there's a pre-existing intrinsic match. And if you miss it, then you're going to miss out on passion. Because to me, my research shows that for most people, if you're good at something, it can get autonomy and impact and sense of mastery, you're going to love it. So the real question is, what's my quickest route from where I am now to having that level of career capital, that level of ability? Do you think most people actually want to be really good at something? Or do you think most people just want to have more time off to just do nothing? So I've got Cal Newport on the show. Cal, how's it going? Uh, It's going well, James. Thanks for having me on. Cal, I've read uh, your two latest books, uh, So Good uh, They Can't Ignore... I I forget the title now. So Good They Can't Ignore You. Is that the title? Yeah, you got it right. (laughs) And and Deep Work. And uh, both are kind of along the same theme, which is that, um, you know, A, how do we achieve success in a world where everybody is kind of um, competing, I think, in, in terms of limited audience for that success? And... How do you, in a world where with so much competition for distraction, how do you, how are you able to do deep focused work so you can actually achieve and become better than all your competitors? I don't know if I would, if you would put it in such a um, kind of competitive way, but I, I sort of view it that way. I do. I mean, I, I like to think about the reality that the market is just brutal. And so you can, you can talk a lot about, oh, I want contacts. I want my network to be good. I want to be up with new technologies. But in the end, it's, Things that produce rare and valuable output is valued by the market. Activities that are easily replicated are not. So my sense is the more you spend doing the former, the better off you're going to be. And you bring up such a great point in one of the books. And and by the way, the, the two books together, I recommend people reading them almost like, like one book. Like read both books. If you're going to read one, read the other. But you bring up one point, which is... Uh, uh, the blogger who is constantly figuring out how to SEO, how to get more traffic, 
you know, and do all these tricks to get traffic. But the reality is none of that works. Like the important is to have content that's better than anyone else's content. And I find that across every field. Like it's not just a matter of everybody thinks, oh, it's what you started off with or what you were born with or who's in your network or who do you know? But the reality is you got to be so good people can't ignore you. Yeah, I mean, that was, so the first book of the two you mentioned basically said that, that said, you know, become so good you can't be ignored, and then you'll really love your job. And and don't don't hope that you have this passion in advance, then everything will follow. And then people asked, okay, so how do I do that? How do I become so good I can't be ignored? And that led to the idea that deep work, which is this activity where you focus without distraction on something really hard, that that has to become at the core of your professional life, which kind of sounds obvious, but it's actually something that's becoming increasingly rare right now at exactly the same time, but I think it's becoming increasingly valuable. It, it is becoming increasingly rare because I find even with my own work, let's whether I'm writing or reading or doing or researching a podcast, I find that it's so easily to get distracted by like Twitter, Facebook, email, Instagram, playing games online. There's so many distractions out there, phone calls. I, you know, I think that's the the, the the bane of work existence now, that's like the common way in which people work now as we communicate on this tiny device like the smartphone where a thousand other distractions exist. So they're right there on the exact place where most people do their work. Yeah, exactly. And there's a multi-billion dollar attention economy behind making those things as distracting as possible. There's very smart people working to make sure that as soon as you get anywhere near that smartphone, that you're not going to turn your attention away anytime soon, which to me, as someone who uses my brain for a living, is as scary as, you know, cigarettes should be if you made your living as an endurance athlete. Well, let's, I want to, I want to kind of get uh, some, some stories first and then your story. So like, obviously the the first book comes from an interview between Steve Martin and and Charlie Rose. Tell, Tell me that story. Yeah, it's a famous interview from, I think, 2006 with Steve Martin uh, being interviewed by Charlie Rose. And towards the end, Charlie says, what's your advice to people who want to be successful entertainers? And what Martin said is, you know, I have an answer I always give and no one wants to hear it. Right. They want to hear here's the secret to getting an agent. Here's the secret, to, the you know, getting the right connections. But he says the advice I always give is be so good they can't ignore you. If you do that, good things will come. And that really struck me at an important point pretty early in my my career as an academic when I was also fiddling around with, well, do I have the right marketing for my academic topics? Have I found the the sort of the 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 glitzy is my website looking right? Do I have the glitzy direction? And that turned me around to say, no, what matters is do what you do really well. Be so good you can't be ignored, and all this other good stuff will come. And that was sort of at the core. Uh, of that first book, that that's at the core of building a working life that you love, a meaningful working life, successful working life, is that simple adage. Well, and then, um, and this is related to other stories in that first book, Steve Martin kind of took it to the edge of comedy. Um, He kind of mastered all these different skills, like let's say playing the banjo, let's say uh, being, you know, he had magic tricks, he was a clown, he he obviously learned everything he could about stand-up comedy, but then he took it to what you... um, you know, you referred to Stephen Johnson's books about the adjacent possible. So what's, you take it to the cutting edge and then what's next? And so with Steve Martin, he became so good, nobody could ignore him by kind of figuring out something new in comedy, which is make a joke and leave and have no climax to it, have no punchline, leave the tension sort of hanging there, which was which was very unique at that point in comedy. Yeah, he innovated. And, and innovation's important because a lot of people like this idea that I want to do something new. 
I want to have an innovative idea. It's going to be different than what other people are doing. But the argument I made is that if you actually study these type of innovations, uh, they don't come out of nowhere. They don't come at the very start of your journey in a given profession. Almost always, you have to get to the cutting edge of your field, which just requires a lot of deep work and hard work. And only once you're at the cutting edge are you actually equipped to notice these new reconfigurations from which innovation comes. So if you're sitting in your dorm room saying, I'm going to come up with the nonprofit idea that's going to change the world. If I could just have the right idea, everything would follow. You're thinking about it wrong because you haven't done the hard work yet of mastering a field and getting to the point where these type of innovations suddenly become more obvious. And then this is related to the idea that everyone, uh, you know, I get these emails, I'm sure you get these emails, or, or actually you don't even really read your emails, but, uh, uh, you know, I get these emails. Oh, I'm 28 years old. I haven't found my passion in life yet. And you address this many times about kind of the, the the notion of passion and and the relationship between that and success and deep work. If you haven't, if you're not at the cutting edge of a field, you might not even know if something's your passion or not yet. Yeah, I mean, this is why I got in a lot of trouble with that book. Is that the the log line for it essentially is follow your passion is bad advice. And I went around and gave talks about this and, and, and did a lot of interviews about it. And people's initial reaction was sort of uniformly hostile <laughs> to that idea. Yeah, because yeah, But to your point, like you, you can't find your passion if you're sitting in your dorm room. If you don't even know anything about the fields that interest you, you might not know what you're passionate about. Right. And this, even the word uh, irritates me because we, we, we got convinced in the believing in relatively recent history. We're talking like the 1980s and later. We got convinced in believing that we all have a capital P passion that's an intrinsic trait like our eye color or height, and that really career happiness is a matter of introspection. We do introspection, and we discover what it is our passion is, and then we go match that to what we do for a living, and we'll be happy. So I, I studied this question in that book, and so that's not how it happens. Passion comes later. Passion almost always follows, if you actually follow people who love their work, after they start to get really, really good at it, after they get to the cutting edge. There's exceptions, but they're really rare. It's like nine out of the 10 people I talk to who are passionate about their work did not start with a pre-existing passion. So I was really trying to invert that script. You know, passion follows you. It's not something that you start with and then but use do, as a basis of decisions. Don't you think though, like people have some initial talent or passion, which is almost like the ignition key. So like Steve Martin initially was attracted or had a passion to performing, hence he started working. You know, and you have many stories. I keep focusing on the Steve Martin story, which is a relatively old one compared to all the other stories in your book. But he did have some initial passion for performing and comedy and being a clown and playing. You know, that was like the, and he had some talent too, even though it took him, as he mentions in that same interview, it took him 10 years of hard work every day before he achieved some success. But it was kind of the, the ignition key which started the car. Yeah, but it's, it's important to recognize that uh, passion grows over time as you go down the, these paths. So if you, if you take people who built up mastery and ended up very passionate about their work, there might have been some sort of pre-existing you know, interest or spark, but it was small compared to to the actual level of sort of fulfillment and passion they get out of it once they got really good. And if, if you actually study the process, what you see is passion snowballs. So, you know, my, my framework is as you get good at something that's rare and valuable, that gives you leverage in the marketplace. The metaphor I use is you acquire what I call career capital. It's the investment of this career capital or the application of this leverage that allows you to start shaping your working life in ways that resonate. It's what lets you get more autonomy. It's what lets you get more of a sense of mastery, which makes you get a sense of impact. And this is where passion 
actually comes from. So how you actually choose what to do? Well, if you already have somewhat of a talent, okay, that's a good good thing to leverage. You'll get your career capital quicker. If you've already become involved in something for whatever reason, and you've already started the skill acquisition, well, maybe stick with that because it'll, it'll short circuit it. But I don't believe that there's a pre-existing intrinsic match. And if you miss it, then you're going to miss out on passion. Because to me, my research shows that for most people, if you're good at something and can get autonomy and impact and sense of mastery, you're going to love it. So the real question is, what's my quickest route from where I am now to having that level of career capital, that level of ability? Well, um, so two points on that. Uh, one is, you mentioned the book uh, Little Bets by Peter Sims. So it's almost like you could say, there's many areas where I might have potential passion or and or talent, and I can try each one of these things, at least initially, and see which ones start to flourish for me. And that's what, kind of pointing to the direction of where I want to go and where I want to build career capital. But do me do me one favor and define career capital and and what that means and how to how people can leverage it. Yeah, so so career capital is essentially the sort of the the quantity of rare and valuable skills that you you currently possess. So uh, the more rare and valuable your skills, the more roughly speaking you can imagine career capital that you've invested. On the flip side, the more desirable a trait is in your working life, the more career capital you need to get it. So if you want to live by the ocean in California and work one week a year or something, hey, that might be great. Okay, that's going to take a lot of career capital to get there. On the other hand, if you want to uh, maybe have some more flexibility in your work hours and have some location independence and, and be okay with finances, that might not need as much career capital, but would still need some. So it's just a way of thinking, instead of talking in terms of how much do I like this? Is this the right thing? You instead say, what traits would I rather have in my working life? Do I have enough capital to do that now or do I need to get some more? Uh, this is kind of off to the side, but do you think most people actually want to be really good at something or do you think most people just want to have, you know, more time off to, to just do nothing? I'm, I'm just curious, like you're, you're in an environment, you, so just to set the, the background, you're, you're a tenured professor in computer science at, at Georgetown. Um, you and I both majored and went to graduate school in, in computer science. Uh, uh, you know, obviously you're a very hard worker. You want to succeed. You've written all these books at, at a very young age. You, you've achieved some success. Do you think most people want that? Well, the, the thing is, though, is some, no, no, not most people maybe don't, but almost anything that people do want in their career is going to be most easily acquired if you have career capital. So like, let's just say, I don't want to work that much. You probably want to couple that with, and also I don't want to be you know, destitute. So I don't want to work that much maybe, but also I want to have enough money. I'm not worried about it. How do you get there? Career capital. So give me, some, give me some examples. Right. So I talked about a database developer in the book, and this was basically what she wanted to do. She wanted to not work the full year. She wanted to spend uh, four to six months a year in Thailand, I think it was, where her family is. And so the way she got there is uh, very systematically and aggressively became too good to be ignored uh, in her actual field of database development. That gave her career capital. She could use that as leverage to, to change the terms of her work. And she could have these contracts that lasted six months, were more than lucrative enough to fund the other six months. It's a clear sort of career capital invested for autonomy. She's not trying to be... Uh, you know, Bill Gates, she's not, she's not trying to make a fortune. You know, she built skill and used it to actually create a life that would, you might say, is is really low key. So so how did she um, how did she be so good you can't ignore her uh, in a field that, again, there's a million people in that field? Yeah, so I, I actually somewhat painstakingly followed her process from uh, getting into the computer industry with no background, which was as a quality assurance tester. 
And just step-by-step at every stage, she said, what would be valuable here? And then did the deliberate work to get better at that and then leverage to the next stage. Like, you know, her very first step was figuring out how to script and automate these QA testing routines that her and the fellow QA testers were doing. That got her in charge of a QA group and then repeat that pattern for three years and she's able to strike out on her own with a lot of big contracts. You, you mentioned the phrase deliberate work, which is, I'm assuming, related to uh, Anders Ericsson's notion of the 10,000-hour rule and, and deliberate practice. Um, why don't you define uh, deliberate work? Because I think that's very key to, to how to achieve success in a field. Yeah, so it is reference to deliberate practice. I mean, deliberate practice is the consensus in the field of performance psychology of how do people get good at hard things. And what we know now, and this, it sounds obvious once you hear it, but there's actually a lot of debate about this you know, 20, 30 years ago, that the way you get better at something hard is you actually have to practice it in a way designed to make you better. So As you opposed actually, to just like playing thousands it. of games of chess and not getting any better at all, there's tweaks you can do to those thousands of games that, that actually do make you better. Yeah, I mean, these were the two competing theories at the time. One was repetition. If you do something enough, you get better. All right, it's not the case, right? I mean, uh, once you get reasonable at chess, if you keep playing chess games, you're not necessarily going to get better. The second theory was, oh, it's knowledge. You have to learn more. The more you learn about how chess works and the strategies, the better you get. And it turned out neither were right. What you actually have to do to become a grandmaster as quickly as possible is you need to do lots of training sessions with an instructor who can continually push you just past where you're comfortable to keep improving your, your repertoire skills. And so this is the deliberate practice hypothesis the, the 10,000 hours observation is something that that is creating sort of needless controversy. So it's something I kind of, it's kind of misunderstood and forget right. about that. Forget about that. What matters is if you want to get better, you got to be stretching yourself. Just doing something time and again is not going to make you better. That's really the message that Anders would want people to take away from his work. So give me give me some other examples because you have, you have tons of great examples in the, in both your books. Yeah, well, I mean, to understand deliberate practice better, I, I had this, this question I thought was nice, which was I, I knew this professional guitar player and him and I had started playing guitar at the same age, more or less, in our life. And so he's younger than me, but he was in his 20s. This is Jordan uh, um, Tice. Tice. Jordan Tice. And he's a very successful guitar player. I played guitar a lot all throughout junior high school and high school. I was a band in a band. We played a lot. We recorded things. And I was mediocre at best after that much time. So I went and hung out with him at this sort of musician's house where he lived, where it was, you know, banjo players sleeping on the floor in the living room and the bassist was, you know, in the kitchen. Uh, and I said, can I just watch you practice? And that, that showed me right away, okay, here's why he is a nationally known musician and um, was not at this age. Because if you watch him practice, it was almost painful. Uh, he had this, he was trying to learn a lick and it's hard. It was very quick finger movement and he couldn't quite do it. So he kept doing it again and again just a little bit faster than he was comfortable. He wasn't just playing at the speed he knew how to play. He was trying to push himself a little bit faster than he was comfortable and see how far he could get before making a mistake. I still remember his breathing. It was these sort of rasping breaths. He was concentrating so hard, it was like he would forget to breathe and then would have to gasp, you know, to get some air in. But that's deliberate practice. You know, you do that for one hour, you master the lick. Whereas when I would practice the guitar, I hated that. What I wanted to do was take a song I already knew how to play and just rock out with it. I wanted to play along to Hendrix and do my pentatonic scales or, or in, in band practice, just play a song that came easy. I really hated the discomfort of doing things I wasn't good at yet. But that's deliberate practice. That's how you get better. So so to summarize it, uh, uh, 
doing things that are just slightly out of your comfort zone, doing things that are uncomfortable for you that you don't necessarily enjoy, but will improve your skill. Yeah, stretch. Yeah, it's just like muscles, right? I mean, if, if you got to lift the weight beyond where you're able to do easily until you get muscle failure. Same thing with the brain. You got to push yourself past where you're comfortable uh, with clear target and clear feedback. And that's what stretches your mental muscles makes you better. So part of that also is like you're, 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 when you're identifying his practice and you do this throughout both books, one kind of uh, interesting thing that comes up is the fact that all of these people who are doing deep work and being so good they can't be ignored are not uh, on Instagram or Facebook. <laughs> so they're, they're yeah. not kind of like t- doing 10 minutes of uh, programming or playing the guitar or farming or writing or whatever and checking their emails. They're ignoring that completely. And in fact, many people, like you mentioned the case of Neil Stevenson, who's a, a, a great uh, science fiction writer, um, futurist writer, who very deliberately and kind of almost ironically does not even have email. Um, you know, it, it's just just key to this is avoiding all these distractions. Yeah, I mean, this is my my argument. I'm, basically, what I'm trying to model and promote is a relatively extreme lifestyle. We can call it the deep life, which is where you prioritize doing deep work, so focusing hard on hard things, and you also prioritize cultivating that and training that ability and trying to push your level of focus uh, higher and higher. And in order to to prioritize these activities be ruthless about eliminating and be more efficient with everything else. And that's why, you know, in my case, I've never had a social media account. I, I don't have a general purpose email address publicly available. Um, I'm, I'm kind of hard to reach. I, I don't web surf. You know, I don't How do know we where reach to go. You? Well, so what I, what I have is an opportunity address, which is great, which says, you know, if you have an interesting opportunity, you can, I might be interested in send it here, but just know that I, I'm only going to respond if it, if it happens to match, you know, my interest. So there's no obligation that I, you know, so there's no way that just as a reader, for example, you can just, hey, let's start up a conversation. Uh, and there's, there's pluses to all these things. There's pluses to being more available to your readers. There's pluses to being on social media. But I, by ruthlessly prioritizing your ability to focus, my claim is it's like a superpower. I mean, you, it's not about you'll be a little bit less distracted, you'll be a little bit more productive. It's about multiplicative factors, more productive and more satisfying. I mean, it's kind of an extreme stance I'm taking, but it's basically the stuff that requires hard, hard focus and pushes your skills to its limit is by far the most valuable, important stuff you can do. And all the other stuff that's easily replicatable, I mean, you know, any 16-year-old with a smartphone can do social media. Uh, any of these things that are easily replicatable are not adding nearly as much value as you could to your life by concentrating really hard on very hard things. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period and I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. 
And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. 
You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So I like this phrase, deep life. So prioritizing it, like understanding that, I'm rephrasing you, but understanding that you need to do this to have kind of a deep work sort of life or, 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 or to be so good that they can't ignore you and then cultivating it. So actually, um, you know, doing the things necessary to, to get this deep life. So what other things, uh, can one do to kind of create this, this, you know, cultivate this deep life and eliminate these distractions or do whatever else it takes. Right. Well, I mean, there's a few things relevant here. I mean, a key point that's often missed and that's relevant is that the ability to focus is, is a skill that has to be trained. So this throws a lot of people off because people think about focusing like flossing, a, a habit. I, I, they know how to do it. They just need to make spend more time doing it would be good for them. And it, the reality is actually it's a skill like playing the guitar. You know, the more you practice it, the better you are. And if you haven't been practicing it, just like you wouldn't expect to pick up a guitar and start jamming if you've never played before, if you haven't really practiced or tried to cultivate your ability to focus, you'll find a deep work session to be frustrating and ineffective. So that's sort of the first thing I, I try to put out there is that uh, this is a skill and it's hard to cultivate, but it's very, very valuable if you do. And then, of course, there's a whole uh, there's a whole sort of uh, collection of strategies for how you then build your life around deep work, which Likewise. is sort of more on the strategic side. Uh, all right. So, for example, you have to have some sort of philosophy of scheduling for where deep work plays a role in your life. You can't just go through your day and say, uh, at some point, I hope that I just have this feeling that I don't have much to do and I'm in the mood to focus hard. You'll never do any deep work. Deep work is hard. It's cognitively demanding. It uses up energy. Our, our brain does not like to use up energy if, if it doesn't have to because food used to be scarce. So you're never going to naturally drift towards deep work. So you have to have some sort of ironclad scheduling system. This is the role that deep work plays in my life. And then you need to couple that usually with rituals around the actual deep work sessions themselves. Again, it's all combat with your brain. You do all this combat with your brain to get it to actually go into these states of deep concentration. It seems like, um, you know, I hear this a lot from people that kind of a key to success is fighting your brain. Because <laughs> we developed, we, we, you know, we're humans and we develop this amazing ability to adapt to new situations. That's why our brain is better than that of any other species. But in, in depending on how you define better. But, uh, but at the same time, to actually achieve success, we have to kind of fight these inclinations our brain has because we're sort of in this society that's quickly, uh, where the society has evolved faster than our genes have evolved. So, so a lot of it is battle with our brain. And what are some of the ways that, that the brain tries to slow us down? Well, I mean, one thing you have to be aware of is the phenomenon of attention residue, uh, which says that if you switch your attention from one target to another, the original target is going to leave a residue in your brain, which can stick around for quite a long time. And what's an example? Like it sounds fancy, attention one, residue. 
Uh, okay, so let's say you're trying to write something. So you're doing a, a, a deep task. You're trying to write something difficult, and you do a quick check. Let me just quick check my inbox. And when you do so, you see a couple emails in there, and in particular, you see an email from your agent, and you're like, ah, I know i got to get into that, and it's a little bit complicated. I can't really do that now. But I just glanced at this for 30 seconds. Let me put my attention back to the writing. That's going to be bouncing around in your head for 10, 20 up to 30 minutes lab uh, experiment show, and your cognitive capacity is going to be reduced during that period. You're basically going to lose a major portion of your brain, and we all have this experience, to trying to write your reply and think through what you want to say and the implications, and at the same time, you're trying to focus. And this is a, a huge problem right now for knowledge workers. A lot of people who think they don't multitask, what they're still doing are these quick checks. They're like, no, no, I'm just doing one thing at a time, but I mean, obviously, I got to just do a quick check of that inbox and a quick check of the phone. And it puts you in a state of continual reduced cognitive capacity. It's like you're taking a you know, reverse nootropic drug, like a drug that actually makes you slower and dumber or, you know, while you're doing your work. But our brain isn't, uh, it wasn't evolved for prioritizing intense focus. So you know, when we glance at something, that's able to actually take over a mechanism. There was no selective pressure to sort of help us very quickly get our attention back. So you have to really fight that. And for example, when doing deep work, say... I have zero distractions. 10 seconds glancing at something means this is a failed session. Mm-hmm. That's fighting evolution. That's fighting the way our brain's actually wired. So so what's your story? Like, who are you? Why did you get interested in this? Yeah, well, two ways. One was after I wrote So Good They Can't Ignore You, where I said, hey, if you want to love your working life, get really good. People had an obvious follow-up question, which was, okay, how do I... I get really good at things. Like, let's say I buy this premise and passion will follow skill. How do I get really good at things? And in some sense, deep work is the best answer I have. Uh, but second, I needed to be as good as possible if I was going to try to succeed in my day job. Right? I'm trying to get trying to get tenure. I needed the the producer at a high level, so I was very interested uh, in in trying to understand what matters and what doesn't uh, in my own sort of quintessential knowledge work type career. And so I started writing more and more and clarifying this topic, and eventually turned into a book. And so your 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 quote unquote day job, as you say, is you're you're a professor of computer science. What's your what's your research at at Georgetown? So I'm on the theory side. I, I work on the theory of distributed algorithms. So I don't really touch computers much. I'm more whiteboards, if that makes sense. So and and do you find it distract? What do you enjoy more? Kind of, it's almost like you have two lives. So you're you're a professor of distributed algorithms, which requires obviously deep work and hours of thinking and concentration, and then proving theorems and publishing papers and so on. And then you're, you know, I'm on your email list, so you send out emails a couple times a week. You you uh, uh, you know, you've written these books that are widely read in kind of the motivational community. Uh, which do you enjoy more, or or, or well, I- is one distracting to the other? Uh, neither. Well, I mean, first of all, I would describe my, the writing section of my life is also very deep work centric. So, you know, I don't, as I mentioned, I'm not on social media. I don't make myself generally available. I mean, what I do is, uh, once a week I write a blog post. Uh, and then when I'm working on books, I, I usually get up early and I'm thinking and writing books. It's actually a very deep existence, my approach to writing. I don't do any of the audience engagement stuff or almost none of the audience engagement stuff that's all conventional wisdom now. And it turns out it doesn't really matter. So <laughs> that's good. Well, well, uh, why, you- why is that? Because so I, I write quite a bit and I do some audience engagement and I find it to be an okay way to kind of build audience. Like if someone wants to, uh, you know, if I'll go on other people's podcasts, for instance, you're going on my podcast. This is a form of audience engagement for you. So, so some things actually are effective. You kind of have to pick your targets. Well, it's not that it's not effective, but the 
for an individual author, and, and your situation is going to be different because you could you could sort of explain what you're doing as more of a media company, right? And it's a very different thing, I think, if you if a company using social media to help market makes sense because everyone else is on it, so why not take advantage of it? But as an individual author, the the general rule of thumb I can discover is you can get you'll convert you know one to two percent of your audience maybe into uh, book sales, right? So for someone like me, and I don't mind talking about numbers. Um, my blog will have maybe like a hundred thousand unique visitors a uh, month, and that'll translate to uh, one to two thousand pre-order sales of a book, which is nice. And I've I've talked to some more prominent authors that have larger audiences, and it scales just nicely. You know, people have five times that audience; they get it translates to six or seven thousand you know pre-orders, and it's fine. But that doesn't really. Uh, have a ma- it doesn't massively move the needle. So in other words, just the mathematics aren't there for me. If I spend a lot of time fracturing my attention and audience engagement, at the other end, it might be 500 sales, might be 1,000 sales, and that's not worth it. In other words, that's, that's not enough ROI for fracturing my attention because that's going to make my life harder. I'm not going to get as good. I'm not going to produce books that are as good. I'm not going to think as deeply. And I guess that's related to Neil Stevenson's point of I could either, he says, I could, in your book, he says, I can either be, you know, responding to tweets or responding to emails, or I could, you know, which talks to maybe like 30 people, or I could write an entire, you know, other book. Yeah. Yeah. He said, well, there's two artifacts I could leave behind uh, a bunch of email conversations I had with individuals, or one book that'll be read by hundreds of thousands of people for years to come. And he said, I, I, I want the book, I think is a better use of my time. And so he says, don't invite me to conferences. His website's funny. It says, okay, you can try to invite me to speak, but I am going to charge you like an outrageous fee and have annoying demands. So that's what he, that's what he puts on it. He started using social media, but then felt the need to write a whole essay about why he's bad at social media and don't expect him to be on social media. It seems like he probably could have just not used it in the first place. But, uh, but yeah, he's my idol. He said I, I, he gives up some advantages in order to have much more massive advantages in another part of his life. Boy, you know, I say yes like far too much to – I try to say no as much as possible. even wrote a book called The Power of No – but I end up saying yes to probably a few too many conferences to speak at. Uh, I need to, and, and then here's what here's the problem I have. I say yes, and then a week before I'm supposed to speak, I regret it, and I write them at the last minute in maybe 50% of cases saying backing out, which is really yeah. bad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the worst. It's, <laughs> I have that exact same effect. It's like, oh no, I actually have to, I have to go to Arizona. <laughs> this is going to take forever, and I have to give this talk, and yeah. I'm with you, so I, I try to say no. Yeah, I have uh, to speak at a conference in Arizona, actually, in a few months. <laughs> yeah, so. it's, it's just a, a little bit too inconvenient to make the flights work, as you probably know, it's, it's more time than you think. And Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have this philosophy in, in the book, which I think is, is relevant, which is I think when it comes to, like, tools, for example, in, in your life in the digital age, that most people are adopting what I call the any-benefit mindset which says, hey, if this tool has any possible benefit or if there's any possible interesting thing I might miss out on if I don't use it, that's justification for me to use the tool. And I think that's the the dominant mindset right now, especially in the space of digital communication tools and social media. It's like, oh, there might be some benefit here. Let me try it. Which is actually sort of unprecedented in the, the history of skilled labor. 
this notion that you would ever just have a philosophy of tool adoption that was, well, this might be useful, let me spend time and attention on it, just doesn't make sense. You would never find you know, a skilled artisan or a farmer or anyone else who does something that's, that's uh, skilled and demanding just sort of buying tools or trying out tools because why not? In almost every other field of skilled labor, there's a huge level of discernment and a huge threshold a tool has to pass before it can actually get access to your, your time and attention. And so one of the things I argue is we should have that same mindset in the digital age. I don't care that there's some benefit I might get from Twitter. If I can't find a huge demonstrable advantage it would give to the things that matter most to me, it hasn't earned my time and attention. So, so uh, right now, like I, again, I like this notion of of deep life. Uh, so pri- making so prioritizing it, which I think a lot of people don't do. They think that um, oh, they can multitask uh, or they could like just hustle harder. I mean, there's this whole mythology around, oh, if I work a hundred hours a week and really hustle and grind, I'm going to be, you know, successful. And I think that's just not true. Uh, I think you make the point that if you kind of, uh, narrow in on the, the, the right activities during the right amounts of time, there's more time for, for leisure and enjoying life and, and success. Yeah, that's why I introduced this term shallow work to help uh, clarify this idea. So, you know, deep work is when you're you're focusing on something hard, something that's producing the most value you can, and let's let shallow work be the antonym, basically every other activity. And the right way to think about it is that, you know, if you have a job, deep work is what's going to get you promoted, while shallow work is what's going to prevent you from getting fired. Or if you run your own company, Shallow work is what might keep you out of you know, bankruptcy this month, but it's deep work that's going to triple your revenue. And so the right way to think about things is that shallow work can't be completely avoided, but you want to be skeptical of it. You want to be as efficient as possible, and you want to reduce it as much as you can. You want to get down just to the core things to be hyper-efficient, and it's the deep work that's actually going to help you make progress. It's actually going to help you get ahead, and that's what you really want to be doing a lot of. So you can't just say, I'm busy and say that's good hustling and I'm successful. You have to say, what am I busy with? And if you're busy with shallow work, if you're in an email inbox for 100 hours a week, then you're like, oh, that's that something's wrong going on here. Like, I shouldn't feel proud. I should feel proud about how much deep work I did. That's what's going to push the needle. And shallow work is just something, it's like keeping the lights on as to logistics. You know, okay, I got to do it, but I don't want it to take up much, too much time. And if I'm spending a lot of time on it, that should be a warning bell, not uh, a foundation for celebration. If I'm spending 100 hours a week on shallow work, I shouldn't pat myself on the back. I should sign off the alarm bells and say, oh, something's wrong here. I read this story about Anatoly Karpov, who was the world chess champion in the late 70s, early 80s. And he basically, someone asked him, how often per day do you study chess? Thinking it would be like 12 hours a day because he's the best player in the world. And he said, maximum three hours a day. And the rest of the time, like he was taking language lessons, he was relaxing, he was playing tennis, you know, deep work versus for for him, his version of, of shallow work. Do you think there's a maximum of how many hours a day someone can actually do deep work? Yeah, well, what we know from the research is that deep work at the highest levels of intensity, like what you would, you would experience if you're Karparov doing chess practice, or if you're a professional musician, you know, trying to learn a new piece, it's about four hours. Mm about four hours, so there, there's a little bit of give into it. But there's an important caveat that when most of us in the knowledge sector are doing deep work, it's not at that level of intensity. So we, we actually can can get away with doing a lot more because what really happens, so I'll, I'll typically, like yesterday, eight hours of deep work, most of it on foot, and a lot of it actually in the woods. I was working on a proof uh, the whole day. Uh, if you actually went inside my brain and were measuring it, I wasn't at a sort of chess grandmaster level of intensity for that full eight hours. It was more, you know, up and down, like taking a diving deep on this approach. Oh, it doesn't quite work. Okay, 
take a mental breather, mental breather, okay, attack back in. So uh, highest level of intensity is four hours, but knowledge work, deep work, it's really, okay, you could do a whole day easy once you get a little bit more used to it. You have something in deep work about um, kind of embracing boredom. Can you describe that concept a little more? I actually didn't quite understand it. Yeah, so one of the issues with, uh, I guess I would say obstacles with getting good with deep work, so being comfortable focusing intensely for a long period of time, one of the major obstacles people have is that their brains have developed an addiction to novel stimuli. So it, the brain has developed an addiction that at the, the slightest hint of boredom, it craves and demands some sort of novel stimuli, which nowadays a smartphone can deliver basically at any point or any location you might be. So a lot of people have basically this as their standard operating procedure. Like As soon as there's a little bit of line to wait in, as soon as there's a little bit of wait for their friend to arrive at the restaurant, as soon as the microwave is running for the burrito to finish cooking, it's, you know, phone's out, let me get some novel stimuli. If you have this addiction, when it comes time the next day to sit down in your carefully isolated writer's shed and give something your full attention, your brain is not going to cooperate because deep work by definition is boring in the sense that it doesn't give you a lot of different stimuli. You're, you're focusing on one thing. If your brain is addicted to novel stimuli, it's not going to play ball. It's, uh, no, I'm not going to keep my attention on this thing. Where's my stimuli? You know, like there could be a tweet out there about me. For God's sakes, we got to go look at that. Like people are saying something about me. We got, so what if someone liked my Facebook post? We got to go see it. My audience awaits. So you actually have to break that addiction, just like you'd have to break your addiction to smoking if you decided I want to be a triathlete. And how do you do it? Well, the best way to summarize it is embrace boredom. You just have to get used to many points during your average day being bored, craving stimuli, and just being okay standing in that line and being bored for a little while. So so what's um, what's next for you? What's the next book? It sounds like Deep Life is sort of a good concept for a book. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure, but actually something that has caught my attention a lot recently is uh, – the standard work practices and knowledge work. And in particular, this approach to work where everyone has an email address associated with their name. And in a lot of knowledge work organizations, you just sort of rock and roll, sending messages back and forth. And that's kind of how everything's done. And so the business is just driven by this sort of ad hoc, on-demand communication all day long. Like the fish and water, right now we just think this is what it means to work in the knowledge age. You you have a Slack channel or an email inbox and you just communicate with people. Uh, but I've been solidifying this hypothesis that this is actually probably like a very early stage and naive approach to knowledge work. Knowledge work is very new and that we're going to see a revolution towards sort of much more specialized, much more productive and fulfilling workflows that the age of just everyone having an email address, their name at company.com through which everything flows is going to come to an end. So I'm, I'm working on solidifying that idea and, and peeking a little bit into what this future might look like. You know, earlier we were mentioning how, um, you know, people kind of too quickly try to figure out or or get disappointed in the, the idea of what's my passion. And I guess replacing the word passion with the word goal, uh, when do you think this idea, oh, I have to have a goal in life or I have to like um, have goals, period, you know, like people have 10-year, 20-year, 5-year goals that they, they think that if they're not on track all the time, then they're a failure. What What's the history of goal making? Like when did people start thinking, oh, I need a goal in life? Because clearly 200 years ago, people didn't have goals. <laughs> like they just wanted to live. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I actually have looked some into it. And I, I don't have a, a, a great answer other than, as you said, different periods. 
looked at these type of issues quite differently. Like if you go back to the ancient Greeks, they didn't talk about concrete goals. They talked about a sort of pursuit of excellence, this arete notion, the excellence in sort of reaching human potential and flourishing as Aristotle writes about, which was more of like a process focus that you're trying to flourish in life. It's not, okay, I want to whatever, lift the heavy stone this weight by, by this age. Uh, certainly in, in a lot of Eastern philosophies, the notion does not exist like that. Um, if you look in Taoism, for example, this notion of like, ah, I have a concrete goal I'm going after is, is sort of antithetical to many of the core ideas. It seems like in the uh, the American setting, it picked up. And I'm not even quite sure exactly when, you know, it picked up to the to the way it did. I mean, if you, if you really study, let's say, the founding fathers era in the, in, in the history of the country, their things were much more about causes than I would say goals, right? If you study their writing, it was not so much... Uh, uh, I want to accomplish this, this, and this. It's more like I want to um, support this cause or I want to dedicate my life to this seem more common. So I don't know if this is like a Dale Carnegie type transition. Are we talking early 20th century? But it is helpful. I think you're absolutely right to note that it's a very specific idea in a very specific moment. It's, it, we shouldn't think of it as synonymous with you know what it means to live a good life. So, so in addition to your um, two excellent books, and also you've had other books like, um, you know, about studying and how to be a successful college student, how to be a successful high school student. I think um, these are excellent uh, reference books for, for all sorts of people. But what other books would you recommend about the notion of, you know, achieving excellence or deep work or, or all of these different topics? And I've always been a big advocate of biography as the best way into understanding these type of personal development business success type notions. You, you take biographies of someone who, who what they did and how they lived resonates with you. Find the best biography you can and then extract you know, the lessons out of there. I mean, if you read, for example, The Rise of Teddy Roosevelt, fantastically written biography, you're going to see a playbook for deep work. Well, and, and, and Teddy Roosevelt was a big example, probably the oldest example for you in, in deep work. I mean, that guy went yeah. from you know, writing a, his first book when he was like a teenager about birds um, yeah. to being president of the United States uh, 25 years later uh, is a good example of deep work. Yeah, it's, it's like the whole, the whole underpinning of his success and all of his endeavors is that he had developed this ability that on a dime, he could turn his attention on something and focus incredibly uh, intensely. I, you know, I, I, re, I retell this story from this biography where he was, uh, him and some people from his ranch in the Dakotas during the winter, where uh, navigating a rowboat perilously through an ice-clogged river to hunt down, I think it was cattle thieves. They're coming after them to hunt down and, and get these cattle thieves going through this river and the ice. It's like an action scene. And Roosevelt's like, oh, here's some downtime. He puts a blanket over his head to block out the, the snow so that he can read Matthew Arnold's book that he had brought with him, trying to understand some sort of complex you know, philosophy. That was Teddy Roosevelt. He could just focus with such intensity that he was able to produce, which I like to underline because, again, when it comes to deep work, people think about it as, oh, it'd be nice to be less distracted and maybe I'd be a little bit more productive. And it's much, much more significant than that. It's it's orders of magnitude almost uh, productions. It's Teddy Roosevelt, you know, writing books while in law school, while running for office. I tell the story in my book about during the year where I wrote deep work, which is a year where my academic output should have gone down because I was now taking a lot of my time and, and spending it on something else. Because writing this book had me tune up my deep work habits because I was thinking about it all the time, I doubled my academic output that year as compared to any previous years. 
that's an example of the type of results you get from this. It really is more like a superpower. I mean, if you really cultivate this ability, you're not going to be a little bit more productive. It's like massively more productive. Well, well, where's the role of disappointment in this? So quick example, uh, you've recently achieved tenure at, at your job as a professor at Georgetown. Congratulations. What if you had not, for some reason, achieved tenure and suddenly you were disappointed? I imagine like you, you had spent 10 years of your life going for uh, you know, this position, what if you had not achieved it? Or what if, uh, you had not published the book you wanted to publish or whatever? How, how do you, uh, kind of take some of these deep work concepts to deal with disappointment? Yeah, I would have been disappointing. Um, but maybe what this brings us back is to one other attribute of deep work, which we haven't really emphasized yet, which I think is just as important, which is it can be incredibly satisfying in itself. And so this is the the safety valve you have in a deep life. It's, you know, craftsmanship is hard, but human beings seem to be wired to really resonate with honing a craft and applying a craft. So that's the safety valve you have in a deep life is that even if what you're working on doesn't go your way, you know that what you want to do is get your head back down and you want to focus on things that are important and try to do them at a high level. It's a sort of a deeply intrinsically satisfying experience. So I, I, that's what I would have to, to hope for is that, well, at least I built my life around craft, and so I can find satisfaction in today, even if the goal of the last five years wasn't achieved. It's sort of like, uh, so Mark Cuban has has written about this a little bit. Uh, he basically says you, you don't get uh, good at what you're passionate at, you get um, passionate about what you're good at. So you become good at something, and this is what gives you you pleasure and 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 then ultimately success, because you'll, you'll, you'll feel the need to do this flow or deep work uh, on it. Yeah, passion follows passion follows skill. I mean, this was the this was this was the premise of when I saw a Cuban speech on that. We actually got tried to get in touch with him to say, "Hey, you should probably endorse this book because I think I think I just wrote a book about this idea that that you just said." So I'm I'm completely on board with him about that. So great. So Cal Newport, author of uh, "So Good They Can't Ignore You" and "Deep Work." I really enjoyed the books. So many great inspirational and motivating stories in the books as well, plus your kind of formulas for achieving deep work and excellence. I highly recommend them. Thanks so much for appearing on my podcast. This is really great. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time. Yeah, thanks, James. I enjoyed it. Excellent. Thanks, Cal. I'll talk to you soon. Cool. Cool. All right. Thank you. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.